0: Welcome to another episode of the Biblia Sacra podcast, a podcast that exists to help you become a better reader of scripture and to wrestle with the strange parts of the Bible. My name is Jeff. I'm a master's student at Duke Divinity School, and I'm glad you're here. Hey friends, I'm glad you tuned in to another episode of the Biblia Sacra podcast. And I'm I'm even more glad and I'm even more grateful if you listened to the last episode in its entirety. It ended up being a lot longer than I wanted it to be, and it ended up being a little more technical than I wanted it to be, so I hope you weren't bored. But I think that conversation was really important for shaping how it is that we're going to understand what it means to interpret scripture going forward in our conversations on this podcast and to wrestle with what it means to say that the Bible teaches anything. So if this is your first podcast with the Biblia Sacra Podcast and you didn't listen to the last episode, I would really encourage you to go listen to it. It is a little long and it is a little technical, but it is really important just for shaping the way that we're going to understand talking about how it is that we can say scripture means something for us today as 21st century Christians who are interpreting these ancient texts that are far removed from our current situation in the 21st century. And so as I promised at the end of last episode, today we are going to do another case study on interpreting scripture theologically and approaching scripture with the question of what it might have to say about the role of women in ministry. And if you remember last episode, I ardently defended the role that I think God, has given women in the proclamation of his gospel and in the proclamation of his kingdom being established on earth as in heaven. And I am convinced because of the scriptural witness from Genesis to Revelation and because of the life and ministry of Jesus that God has called women to participate in what he is doing in creation. And that is that is a firm conviction I have. And I wanna talk a little bit about the way in which we interpreted scripture in the last episode. So some might call what we did a historical critical or a historical reading of scripture. If you remember, we tried to enter into the world of Paul and into the world of Jesus and to understand what they wrote and what was written about Jesus from within the world that they occupied or they inhabited. And so a lot of New Testament scholars and a lot of people in the academy would call that a historical critical or a historical reading of the biblical text. And today, I want to do a little bit of a different reading of Scripture to see what scripture might have to say about women in ministry. And I wanna apply what I would call a literary theological reading of the biblical text that we have received as Christian scripture. That is the canon of scripture that we've received as the church, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And we're gonna explore what I think might be a superior way of reading scripture than a solely historical interpretation of the biblical text. And I think it's superior because of this. A solely historical interpretation of the biblical text assumes that the scriptures meant something back then when they were originally authored by the biblical authors. And so the goal of the interpreter is to reconstruct what those biblical texts might have meant back then back when they were originally authored. So that's the goal of a historical interpretation of the text. And we kind of did that last episode. And I think that is a it's a really good way of interpreting scripture. But I don't think it's the only way that we ought to interpret scripture as Christians. Because I think we as Christians ought to be convinced that scripture didn't just mean something back then, when it was authored by the biblical authors in the first century or earlier than that if we're reading and interpreting the Old Testament, I think we as Christians ought to be convinced that Scripture still means something for us today. That's why I've named the podcast the Biblia Sacra Podcast, because I'm convinced that the Bible is the Sacred Bible, and it means something for us today. And so then we, brothers and sisters in Christ, need to come up with a way of interpreting scripture today, as if it means something for us today, as if God still speaks to us through these texts, because I'm convinced that he does. And in order to develop what I'm going to call a literary theological reading of scripture, I'm going to draw on the work of a guy that I've been influenced by. He was a famous theologian in the 20th century, probably the most famous theologian of the 20th century. His name was Karl Barth. And Karl Barth wrote a book reflecting on the nature of scripture and the task of interpreting scripture theologically called the word of God and the word of man in the 20th century. I'm not sure when it was published. And in that book, he wrote a chapter called the strange world of the Bible. And I love that language. And I think that's the language which we need to develop in order to talk about interpreting scripture literarily and theologically. Because you see, Bart said, rather than taking scripture, and bringing it into our world so that we might understand it, which is what the historical critical method does and which is what we kind of did last episode, right? We tried to enter into the world of Paul, right? And into the world of the historical Jesus and John, who's writing about Jesus. We tried to enter into their world, which is this world, to understand what it was that they were saying back then. And Bart, in response to those sorts of readings of the Bible, would say, no. Absolutely not. Rather than taking Scripture and bringing it into our world to understand it, Karl Barth would say we need to enter into the world of Scripture itself. He would say that Scripture, in a sense, is its own world. It's the strange world of God. And let me stick a little caveat in here, because Barth wouldn't reject a historical reading of Scripture. He wouldn't say that that's not a legitimate interpretation of the biblical text. He wouldn't even say that one doesn't need to do that in order to interpret Scripture. But this is what he would say he would say if that's all you do if all you do is historically reconstruct what scripture meant back then when it was originally authored you haven't interpreted the text you've only done half of the work of interpretation now we need to look at what scripture might mean now we need to enter into the world that is scripture the strange world of scripture that is the world of god And only then have we completed the task of interpretation. And so if you remember our steps of biblical interpretation, this is definitely emphasizing the third step. And that third step, if you remember, was situating what we're reading within the canon of Scripture, within the 66 books of the Bible, understanding that Scripture is telling a unified story, From Genesis to Revelation. And so using Bardian language, using the language of Bart, if we're going to interpret scripture, not just historically, but theologically, we need to enter into the story that is meaningful now for us today, a story that we get to enter into today and that God invites us to enter into today. The unified story of the Christian scriptures that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And so that's what I'm getting at when I call this sort of reading a theologically literary reading of Christian scripture. Because it's it's literary in the sense that scripture tells a story from Genesis to Revelation. And it's theological because it's a story ultimately about God God's creation and what God is doing within that creation for the sake of his creation and creatures to rescue them and the creation itself. And so now that we've done our historical work in the last episode, we dove into the text of Romans 16 and we attempted to hear Paul's words in Romans 16 from within Paul's own world where he sent Phoebe as a diaconos, as a servant of the church to go to Rome and to expound, to preach on the letter of Romans and to explain it to the house churches of Rome. And we also did that with Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. And we tried to enter into the world of Jesus into the world of Paul to see how actually in the world of the first century and in the world of the New Testament, both Paul and Jesus radically empowered women to go forth and to proclaim the good news about what God was doing in and through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. So we did our historical work. We did that. Now I want to try and do this literary theological work and enter into, in the language of Barth, the strange world of God and enter into specifically the story. That, that scripture is telling from Genesis to Revelation and see what that story might have to say about women's role in creation and in the redemption and consummation of that creation and in the new creation that is the church. So friends, with that, let's dive into the strange world of the Bible and see what the story it tells might have to say about women's role in creation and in the new creation that is the church. And I'm gonna go ahead and say this, I'm building upon the work of numerous biblical scholars who said a great deal about the creation account of Genesis in Genesis one and two. Some of those biblical scholars are John Walton, who's at Wheaton, who's written a book called The Lost World of Genesis that has really influenced me. Another one of those scholars is N.T. Wright, who just moved back to Oxford. He's had an enormous impact on the way in which I read scripture. And so if you're trying to figure out where I'm coming from, I'm building upon the work of a lot of what they've said and done. And so we need to start in Genesis, If we're going to adapt a literary theological reading of scripture, we need to start at the beginning of the story. And I know some of you might have reservations with what I'm about to say about Genesis. And if you do, feel free to reach out, feel free to disagree with me. But I'm going to say this about Genesis and about the start of the story that we're entering into. And I want to say this, that we ought to read it as a story, not as a literal scientific depiction of historical fact. I think it does represent historical fact in that it represents the theological truth that God is the creator and he created humankind in his own image. But I don't think the way in which it tells the story was intended to be or intends today in in the present form of the story to be read as a literal depiction of the way in which God created the universe and the world and humankind. And I say that Not because I would be opposed to Scripture having a literal, historical, scientific account of the creation in the beginning, but because the story in Genesis reads just like that. It reads as a story, and there are some pretty significant tells. There are some pretty significant signs within the the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2, that I think encourage us to read it as a theologically load-bearing narrative or story. And the most significant of these signs or tells within the text and within the story is the language of seven days. Now, I know a lot of people today would understand the seven days in the Genesis creation account of Genesis 1 is denoting a historical truth that God created the heavens and the earth in seven 24 hour periods and that that is denoting a literal historical truth about the way in which God created the heavens and the earth. I I think that it would be better to understand the seven days as not denoting a historical truth, but a theological one. And when we enter into the strange world that is the Bible itself, I would suggest that the Bible, that scripture itself encourages us to interpret Genesis 1 and the seven days language in that way is a theologically load-bearing picture of what it is that God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2. And knowing the strange world within the Bible that we're trying to enter into helps us interpret what it is that the Bible is trying to say to us in Genesis 1. Because when we read the account of creation in Genesis 1, Within the overarching story that the Bible is telling, within the strange world of the Bible itself that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, we would know that this appearance of seven days and of seven-day language in Genesis isn't the only occurrence of a significant period of seven days in the scriptural narrative. And the first text within the story of scripture that I want to look at, and within the strange world of the Bible, is Second Chronicles 7-9. And if you're driving, don't, don't look at it on your phone. But if you're just listening, I'd encourage you to look at it on your phone or get out a Bible. But this is Second Chronicles 7-9, and it reads like this in the NRSV. And in the eighth day, they made a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast Seven days. This is incredibly significant for shaping the way in which we ought to read and interpret the creation account of Genesis in seven days in Genesis 1. And I want to break this text down so it reads, For they kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. So, what this text is saying, and what the chronicler is saying, so the author of 2 Chronicles, he is saying, they kept the dedication of the altar that is the like inauguration of the altar which is another way of saying the temple seven days and in the ancient world a temple was the place in which it was thought a deity dwelled and so the temple was the house of the deity and we'll see this in future episodes of the podcast that particularly in the old testament the israelites thought that the temple was the place in which heaven and earth overlapped. It was the place in which God's space, heaven, and our space, earth, overlapped. And it was even more particularly the place in which God dwelled. And we'll see that Israelites thought that it was, in a sense, a microcosm, like a little small world, a little small representation of the entire universe. And that's really significant for how we ought to interpret and read Genesis 1. Because I think Genesis 1 is saying that as the temple was the place in which heaven and earth overlapped, as the temple was the place in which God dwelt, so was all of creation in the beginning. That is the point of the seven-day language. That's temple language. When when we're readers of the Hebrew Bible, when we're readers of the overarching scriptural narrative from Genesis to Revelation, we ought to know, because we're good readers of Scripture, that this seven-day language is temple language. It's talk about the place where God dwells, and it's talk about the place in which heaven and earth overlap. And so I think that is the theological truth that we get out of the creation account in Genesis. That is what the seven-day language is about. God's created for himself a temple, but that's not the only sign within the story that we ought to read the story is a story. There are three more. And I want to lay out these three other points, and then we're going to wrap it all together and we're going to see how this ultimately relates to women in ministry, because I know you're probably confused about how it does. But the first point is this. The language of resting in the ancient Near East, which is the world within which the Old Testament was written. The language of resting in the ancient Near East was a way of talking about a deity taking up residence in a temple. It was dwelling language. It was the idea of the presence of a divine being, a deity, a god, filling a temple and resting and taking up residence in the temple, the place in which he dwells. And if you're familiar with the creation account of Genesis, Genesis tells us that God did in fact rest and he rested on the seventh day, which I think is very significant because when the temple was ratified in Israel, the first temple and probably the second temple, it was on the seventh day. It was on the seventh day when Yahweh was thought to have taken up residence in the temple. He was thought to have made that the place in which he dwelt. And I think that is what the creation account of Genesis is getting at when it's talking about God Resting because God doesn't need to rest. God, by definition, needs no rest. He is completely self sustaining. That's actually a really important theological truth about God. He doesn't need to rest. So, why would scripture say that he does rest? Because that was the language that the biblical authors of Genesis used to talk about God taking up resonance with his people in the creation, the temple that he had created for himself. And I think that's really important. And that's another sign that shows that we ought to read this text as a story. The second point relating to temple language and the Genesis account of creation is that there was always an inner sanctuary in temples in the ancient world and in temples in the ancient Near East, and that inner sanctuary within the actual temple itself was the place in which it was thought that the deity was most fully present. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrews knew this as the Holy of Holies. So there was a place in the first and the second temples in the Old Testament, which was within the actual temple, that it was thought that the divine presence was most concentrated, right? To the point that it was dangerous for, for sinful and unclean people to enter into. And so there was always an inner sanctuary within the temple itself within which it was thought that the deity was most present. And I think we actually have one of those, too, in the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, in Eden. So when we read Genesis with these ancient eyes, we we see that God has created a temple for himself so that he might dwell with his people and in his creation. And within that temple itself, he created an inner sanctuary. For his creatures and he created an inner sanctuary where his presence was most concentrated so that he might be with his people and i think that is what the language of eden and that's what eden is all about it in a sense was the holy of holies and the temple that was all of creation and then this leads us to our our final point relating to this and this is where it gets really interesting because in the ancient world when you had a temple and when you had an inner sanctuary within that temple, you had an image of the God that was thought to dwell in that temple, excepting, right? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, excepting the Hebrews, scripture forbids the making of images of God. The Old Testament is unique in this sense that the temple of the Old Testament did not have an image within the inner sanctuary of the temple and you might ask why we could probably come up with a lot of answers and a good answer would be that the essence of the god that we worship could never be contained in an image made by human hands but another answer could be this there was no image within the inner sanctuary of the temple of judaism of the old testament because god had already made images of himself us and that could be what the biblical authors of Genesis are getting at when they say that we are made in the image of God. A fun fact about Hebrew, the Hebrew word that means image is literally the word that means idol. It literally means like a physical depiction of the God to which it points. And so when Yahweh, the God of Israel, says in the Ten Commandments that you shall make no images of Myself, you shall make no images of God. The word that he's using in the Ten Commandments is the same Hebrew word that the biblical authors use in Genesis to say that we are made in the image of God. So, in a sense, we are little idols of God, we are little physical depictions of what God is. Like. And that ought to encourage us again to read Genesis, not as a historically scientific explanation of how it is that God created the heavens and the earth, but a literary theological story about how God created a temple for himself, a universe that he would dwell in. And in that universe, he created an inner sanctuary, Eden. And in that inner sanctuary, he put two images of himself two co-equal images of himself that both in their own right fully Pointed to the beauty of the God which had made them. And that's the point that we've been driving at this entire time is that when we read the Genesis account of creation, literarily and theologically, we come to see that God has made two images of Himself in Adam and Eve, and He's placed them at the center of creation, in this inner sanctuary, so that all of creation might look at them, look at Adam and Eve, and see the beauty of the God that created them. And that's what it means to bear the image of God, and both male and female were created in God's image. We both fully reflect the love, beauty, and grace of the God that created us, and that's what we were both created to do. And in the story, and this is an important caveat, but in in the story, the male-female relation does undergo some tension. Things go awry in Genesis 3, meaning things go badly, and one of the first casualties of sin's entrance into the world was the relationship between male and female. And so an argument against women's participation in ministry could be that we live in a fallen world, and that now There is this headship, there is this male headship in the household and in creation that wasn't originally intended in creation, but is now the result of the fall. And I think you could argue that 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 was a temporal reality for some time. But that is no longer the case in the redeemed community that is the new creation, that is the church. And this is where we are getting the literary reading of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, because the overarching story of Scripture is about the redemption of creation itself and the creatures which inhabit that creation. And the climax of that story, the climax of the story that the Scriptures are telling, is the arrival of Jesus. And Paul, reflecting on the nature of the community that Jesus founded, the church calls the church something very specific. This is a brilliant theological move by Paul, and it's a beautiful theological truth about who it is that we are in the church and what it is that the church is and who it is that the church is in a world within which it still groans and in a creation that still has hurricanes and that still has tsunamis and a creation that still groans awaiting its ultimate redemption. But Paul calls the church the new creation of God. And I think when Paul is saying that when he's using that language to talk about what it is that the church is, he in a sense is saying that the church is the place in which the creation has been restored. And so he is saying as as it was In Genesis 1 and 2. So it is now in the church. And we might even say that the new creation of the church and the goodness of the new creation of the church has even exceeded, has transcended that which was good in Genesis 1 and 2. But friends, this is the point that I've been driving towards this entire time is that when we read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we would see that both male and female were created to bear the image of God. And in that sense, we were placed at the center of creation, both male and female, to equally and co-equally reflect the beauty and goodness of the God that created us. And that was true in Genesis 1 and 2. And it might, it might have not been true from Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi. If you reading the Christian Bible or all the way to Second Chronicles if you're reading the Hebrew Bible. But with the arrival of Jesus and with the arrival of the restored creation, which he wrought, which he inaugurated, which Paul reflects on in his letters and calls the church the new creation, our vocation, the male and female co-equal vocation of reflecting the goodness and the beauty of God has been restored. And now both, male and female, as it was true in Genesis 1 and 2, are now re invited to reflect the goodness and beauty of the God that created us and to make him known throughout all of creation. I had wanted to keep this podcast a little shorter than the last episode because I know the last one was an absolute grind. And again, if you listen to all of it, I'm really grateful because I'm not sure I would have. And so I think I successfully was a little more concise this go around. But my hope is that you would get a sense of what it looks like to read scripture as a story from Genesis to Revelation, but not just in story, a story about the God of the universe who created this world and who created us in it because he wanted to be with us. And I I hope you got a sense of how the overarching story of the Christian scriptures is a story about the ever-increasing nearness of the God who created us, climaxing in God coming to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And we ought to spend a great deal talking about that in future episodes. But I think the sort of reading that we've just done of Scripture might be called a historical, literary, and theological reading of the text. It's historical in the sense that we're trying to hear the words of Scripture from the perspective of the biblical authors. It's literary in that we're reading Scripture as if it's a story, from Genesis to Revelation. And then it's theological in that we're reading the story is if it's a story about God because we think it is a story about God and it's a story within which we get to enter into and it's a story that ultimately changes our hearts and lives today and with that friends we can close in under 30 minutes which I think is an accomplishment and we can conclude part 2 of the question of women in ministry with the Biblia Sacra podcast. Again if you've joined us I'm grateful and I look forward to being with y'all next time when we get to talk about Jew and Samaritan relations and why it was that they did not like one another in Jesus' day. Thanks, y'all. I'm grateful.